Take your Bibles, if you would, please, at this time, and turn together with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. Matthew, chapter 28. Over the history of the Christian church, God has raised up certain men to whom He has given a burden to take the gospel of Jesus to those in distant lands. One of the greatest examples of this is a man by the name of William Carey. He was born in England in 1761. He was saved and baptized. He became what was then called, and may still be called, a particular Baptist. He was Reformed, and he was a Baptist. He believed what we believe, essentially. For a while, part of his life, he was trained as a shoemaker, what we sometimes call a cobbler. But he loved to learn. He taught himself Greek, Hebrew, Latin, Italian, Dutch, and more languages, many of which he learned while he was working on shoes at his cobbler's bench. But he longed to do more than just being a cobbler. He longed to take the gospel to people in distant lands. And he would put pictures up over his bench of foreign lands. And he would ask God to please send me to preach the gospel to these places. And eventually... He sailed for India in 1793 with his wife, with his family, and with the truth of God's Word. William Carey is the one who is noted for his, quote, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. He later became known as the father of modern missionaries. I recommend to you his biography to read. But what Carrie did was what Jesus had placed on his heart to do. God gave him a great burden to take the gospel to all nations. And so Carrie was heeding the call of God to go and do this. Now here in chapter 28 of Matthew's Gospel, Carrie would read verse 19, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations. Now God calls on people to bring the truth of His Word wherever they are. Carrie brought it further. He brought it to distant lands and was known for bringing it particularly to India. We have seen from the scriptures in recent weeks this as part of what Jesus taught his disciples following his resurrection and before his ascension back to glory with the Father. We saw first from John's Gospel and chapter 20, his appearance on the shore, the Sea of Tiberias. You remember it was there that he restored Peter to being a shepherd and a leader of the church. We went on from there to consider from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, his appearances as reported by the Apostle Paul. And we are now looking here at Matthew 28 and considering what we have called His appearance on the mount. For this was the mount that Jesus told the disciples that He would meet them, where He told them that He would meet them. And this is where we are looking today. And we are focusing primarily on what Jesus says in verses 18 and 19, where Jesus comes up to them and says to them in verse 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He is the sovereign, all-powerful God of heaven and earth. Now remember, He has risen from the dead. They saw Him die. They knew He was dead. 
And yet here he is. He comes up to them and he says, I am the sovereign God of heaven and earth. Now in light of that, in light of all you have heard me teach, in light of all you have seen me do over the past three or so years, in light of the fact that I am raised from the dead, go, disciple. And we talked about the fact that the word go, therefore, is not the primary focus of the verse. It is a connection back to what he said previously. In light of the fact that I am the sovereign, all-powerful God, therefore, be going. And it's actually as you are going. And we're all going. We're all going places. We're all meeting people. We're all going to work or just a friend's house or to a family's house. As you're going, the command then is disciple. In the Greek, one word, disciple. But we use it and we say make disciples. But it is to instruct, to teach. Wherever you're going, Instruct men, teach men, tell men about me. Tell men about the gospel. This is the command that he's telling them to follow. And we mentioned the fact that this is a two-part command, that yes, indeed, it is tell people about me, be witnesses of me, but it does certainly mean make converts. Yes, as they were teaching and telling men about Christ, there would be people that would be saved. They would be saved and converted to Christ. In fact, we made the point that much of what Jesus preached when he said, repent, meant be converted. Turn from your wicked ways and follow the truth. And so this certainly means that they would see men saved. But the second aspect of this command is that we are to teach. We are to make true disciples, educated, learned disciples of Christ that understand who He is and understand what He did and know that He is indeed the true Son of God, the divine Son of God, and the only way for men to be saved from their sins, to escape the ravages of hell, and to be found one day in heaven. The only way is through Christ, and men are to know that. True disciples will know the truth about Christ. The Bible never teaches, go make church followers or church goers. Go make people who just go to church and put in their time. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches, make disciples, true followers of Jesus. And I remind you that we saw from John's Gospel and chapter 8 that Jesus says in verse 32 that it is truth that saves men. It is the truth that sets you free. But he also says in verse 31 that if you have this truth and you keep this truth, then you prove to be my disciples. So it's truth that saves and it's truth that we will follow as disciples. Now today, I want to fill in the rest of this picture as we pick up again in verse 19 and the next part that we will see having considered already the connection that is made in verse 19 go therefore having seen the instruction make disciples today we consider the destination the destination make disciples of all nations Make disciples of all nations. Now let me first of all point out that although the language in verse 19 in the beginning is as you are going, it is abundantly clear that Jesus intended His apostles to go into the world, to all nations. And you'll see how this works out in a minute. But it's abundantly clear that Jesus expected the gospel to go everywhere. 
not just Jerusalem, not just Galilee, not just Israel. He expected it to go everywhere. It's clear, first of all, from what Jesus taught and what he said. What is that most familiar, most famous verse in all the world that you see the guys holding up the signs for in the football games and everything? John 3:16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God so loved the world. And that is to say, it's not just for Israel. It's not just for Jews. It's for the world. God loved the world. So, based upon what Jesus said, you could expect the disciples to go and teach Christ to the world. But it's not only apparent because of what Jesus said, it's apparent because of what Jesus did with the disciples to get this whole thing, this whole process started. So let's see a little bit of this now from the scriptures. It's not exactly an exposition of what it means to go into the world or into all the lands, all the nations, but let's see how it happened. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts in chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Now what we have here is the account of our Lord's last appearance prior to His ascension, and it actually includes His ascension here in Acts chapter 1. So, this is actually going to be our last stop in this whole series. And I don't want to go too deeply into what takes place here in the book of Acts in chapter 1 with our Lord's interaction and teaching with the disciples because we're going to look at it soon. However, what he says here goes hand in hand with what Jesus taught the disciples in Matthew 28. And so I thought it would be good for us to see what Jesus teaches them here in conjunction with his appearance on the mount. We have his appearance here, and this is what he tells them, and I want to focus on this in verse 8. He says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the uttermost or remotest part of the earth. So here, right before he ascends back to the Father, he gives these similar instructions to the disciples. And I want to look at first what it meant for him to say, be witnesses, because he says, you shall be my witnesses. What is he talking about? The word witness is the Greek word martus, and basically it is the one who is a spectator of something who then reports on it. You know how we say that we are to give a witness of our conversion, to give a witness of Christ in our lives? We sometimes call it a testimony. But basically, that's what a testimony is. We are witnessing to others. We are reporting to others what we have come to know in our own lives. You remember when you were a baby Christian and God first saved you? And you go around telling everybody, Listen, look, look at you. Look at what Jesus said. Look at what Jesus did. Look, look at that. And you bring your Bible and you tell people these things. Don't stop doing that. You never get too old to do that. But that's what it is. God has shown His light in your life. He saved you by His grace. And you bear testimony to that. You give witness to that. You report to others what Christ has done in your life. That's what the disciples did. That's what the apostles did. They were to go forth and be witnesses 
to Christ. What they had seen, what they had heard, what they had learned, the fact that they saw him raised from the dead. Wait a minute. Isn't that exactly what we saw from Matthew 28? When Jesus said, go therefore, make disciples. In light of the fact that I'm the sovereign God, teach others, tell others. Be a witness to what you have heard, to what you have learned. So Jesus is essentially saying the same thing to them right here. Be a witness to all that you've learned, to all that I am, to all that you have seen, to all that you have heard. Be witnesses to these things. Now there is another part to the meaning of this word, martus. But we're not going to get to it yet. I'll tell you in a few moments or possibly next week. Look now at the text and see the rest of what he says here. You are, you shall be my witnesses. You see, there was no doubt. You shall be my witnesses. He knew what would happen. Both in Jerusalem. Now let's stop there because that's what we're looking at. It began in Jerusalem. In other words, they were to begin right where they were. Remember what that meant in Matthew 28? Go therefore as you are going. It's right where you are. Start there. You don't have to pack a bag and go to Africa or South America or Russia or Saudi Arabia. Right where you are. Begin there. That's home base. His instructions were that to them to begin right there in Jerusalem. So this totally fits both of what he told them in Matthew 28, as you are going, and what he tells them right here, be witnesses, as he says, to all nations. It fits what he says to the remotest parts of the earth. But you begin right where you are. Notice that he says in the text, be witnesses both in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Both. In other words, wherever you are. If it's in Jerusalem, you are my witnesses. If it's in Judea, Samaria, even if it's the remotest parts of the earth, you are to be my witnesses. I want to ask you really quickly to take a look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, for a moment. Don't lose your place in Acts, because we're going to come back to that. But look at Luke 24. Luke 24 now, those of you who know your Bibles know that this is the account of the resurrection of Christ. He's raised from the dead. He meets with the two men on the road to Emmaus. You come down to the end of the chapter. He shows himself to them in verse 36 and says, Peace be with you. They give him some fish to eat even, and he ate it before them. Verse 44. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you, while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Something that we're learning in our Sunday school class, that we, the church, are the fulfillment of what was prophesied in the Old Testament era. Verse 45, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You see, what he says in Acts chapter 1 
is essentially the same as what he says to them in Luke 24. Now, it's repeated by him. Right before he ascends, he says it again. But he said to them when he first appeared to them, because this is the account of his first meeting with the disciples, with the apostles, given by the Gospel of Luke. He met with the two on the Emmaus Road. They rushed back to Jerusalem, and there he appeared to all of them. And this is the first appearance of Jesus recorded by Luke. And here Luke says that he tells them that they are to be witnesses to him. They are to proclaim his name to all nations. In other words, you're going to go, guys. But you begin right where you are, Jerusalem. You begin in your hometown. His name will be proclaimed to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. This is what Jesus taught. This is what Jesus said. Back to Acts chapter 1. This is what Jesus again tells them just before he ascends in verse 8 of Acts chapter 1. You shall be my witnesses. You shall proclaim. You remember a few weeks ago when we talked about the whole matter of how it is that someone is saved. Yes, there will be salvation as you make disciples. And how will that happen? It happens as you bring truth. For it is truth that sets men free. And how is the truth brought? We took a few minutes to see from the scriptures that it is the proclamation of His Word. The preaching of the Word of God with power and authority is what is used by the Spirit to save men. We'll see that in a few moments. And so we taught them that it is to be proclaimed, that they are to be His witnesses in the proclamation of His Word. And then after Jerusalem, you are to go to all the nations. And he mentions even a few of those nations that they would indeed go to right here in the text. Judea, Samaria, and even the remotest parts of the earth. But I want for you to see now a little bit more of what Jesus did to begin this process. And it begins in the next chapter of the book of Acts. So if you would, please look here at Acts chapter 2. And we see, we'll focus on really those who heard what happened to these disciples, the very beginning of the Holy Spirit being poured out on them. So if you look at chapter 2, the day of Pentecost has come, they're together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So here we have the day of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the disciples. I remind you, we saw in verse 8 of chapter 1, Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem until you have received the Holy Spirit. Because you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon you. This is what Jesus said would happen. The Holy Spirit is poured out on them. Well, they're there in the upper room together. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon the disciples. And what is the first thing they do when the Holy Spirit is poured out on them? Verse for the end, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. They began to speak and they began to speak in other tongues. Now I'm going to take a few minutes to discuss once again the biblical meaning and the understanding of the Scripture as to what it is to speak in tongues. 
And I will tell you right now, based upon the scripture, it is not speaking in gobbledygook, baby talk that nobody can understand at all. That is not biblical. Here is what it was. They began to speak in, with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together. That would have been the sound of that rushing wind. The sound occurred. The crowd came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them, that is the disciples, speak in his own language. So they actually heard the disciples speak in not only their language, but their dialect. They heard them speak exactly the way they would understand, the clearest language that they would know. Their language, their dialect. That's what they heard the disciples speaking at. And they were amazed and astonished. Why are not, why are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each hear them in our own language to which we were born? In other words, if you're from New York, they would hear them with a New Yorker accent. I'm not going to break into a New York accent at this time, but believe me, I can do it. But I was born in New York, and you'd hear them like with that Brooklynese or something. If you're born in the South, like these, this is the Georgia contingency over here, they would hear them say, y'all. And that they, in other words, they were hearing them in the language and the dialect to which they were born. Not just the same words, but just how they would understand it. That's biblical tongues. A language understandable by those who know it, who were raised by it. This is biblical tongues, not gobbledygook gibberish. That is demonic. That is not of the scriptures. That was something that the church had to battle against because it was demonic from long before Christ was even born. They had it in Greece and in other places that they would have this demonic speaking in unknown languages. And they had to rid the church of it. That's why Paul does that in Corinthians. But this is biblical speaking in tongues. Speaking in an unknown language to them, but a language very known to those who heard it. You see, it was unknown to the disciples. They, they weren't doing this. This was the power of God. But everyone who heard them heard it in their language. That's a miracle. That's supernatural. That's the biblical speaking in Tongues, unknown tongues to the speaker, but a legitimate language to those who heard it. That's why I say to you that this modern day movement of speaking in tongues as the way it is done in charismatic and Pentecostal groups is just not biblical. Now, some might accuse me of just being mean spirited. Well, can't we all just get along? You know, the problem is that there is a lot more behind that than just the speaking in tongues. There is all kinds of false theology and false teaching that goes along with it. Because they then say that, you see, this tongues is teaching us something new. It's new revelation. And it isn't. There is no more new revelation. Your Bibles are complete. This is the revelation from God, not unknown tongues from the Pentecostal movement. It's dangerous. And that's why I have no qualms but to warn you against it. Because it is unbiblical and it leads men astray from the truth. 
both in the understanding of doctrine and in the practice of worship. It's dangerous and wrong. Biblical tongues was an amazing gift where the disciples spoke and men heard them in their language. They understood exactly what was being said. But now I want for us to see who heard them. Verse 8 in Acts chapter 2. And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthenons and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judah and Cappadocia and Pontius and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the district of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God. People from all over, from all these places, were hearing them in their very own dialect, in the language to which they were born, hearing them in their own tongues. And what were they hearing? The mighty deeds of God. What would that be? That would be a witness to who Christ is. A witness to what Christ did. A witness to all the miracles that he performed. A witness to his teaching. A witness to his raising the dead. Healing the sick. A witness to his own resurrection. The mighty deeds of God is what they were proclaiming. And they all heard it in their own tongue, in their own language. That was amazing. People from all over. In fact, look back to verse 5. Acts 2 and verse 5. They are described as devout men from every nation under heaven. Every nation under heaven were hearing the very first things that the disciples were speaking when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Every nation under heaven heard them and the disciples didn't even leave the block. They didn't even walk down the street. They didn't get in a car and go to church. They didn't get in a boat and cross the sea. They were right there. And people from all over the world heard them. As you are going began right in Jerusalem, right where they were, and people from everywhere heard them. Just like that. The first day of the church era. And people from everywhere were hearing about Jesus. The mighty acts of God were being proclaimed and they never went anywhere. And yet they reached people from everywhere. Now look at verse 12 again. Verse 12 here. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? I believe that when you proclaim the truth and the word of God, people will be amazed. When they hear it with power, when they hear the truth and the mighty deeds of God, they'll be amazed. That's what we ought to go for. We don't want to go for people being entertained. You know, churches go for people being entertained. Our church aims to make you happy. We don't want any confrontation. We don't want anybody being down. We want everybody to be encouraged and happy. We want people to be entertained. That's not what I'm going for. I'd like you to be amazed with the power of the Word of God. Here comes the truth 
proclaimed by the disciples on the first day and they didn't go anywhere and people from all over the world hear the mighty works of God. That's amazing if you get it in your heart. It's amazing to think that Christ died for the sins of men that you and I could be forgiven and go to heaven. It's amazing that God would save a sinner like me, unworthy, undeserving. It's amazing. I don't want you to be happy. I don't want you to be entertained. I want you to be amazed. Some of you need to be contrite and penitent. Some of you need to be not only amazed, you need to be struck with your own sin. So that you know your need of a Savior. And so that's what begins to happen next. They hear the word of Christ. The life-changing power of the gospel was preached on the first day. That's what we need to do. Preach, proclaim the life-changing, powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. As we're going, each of us. And here's what happens. Peter then, of course, we read in verse 13 that others were mocking, saying that these men are full of sweet wine. In other words, they're drunk. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who are living in Jerusalem... Let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour. That's nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And he goes on to quote scripture to them. He quotes the Bible to them. And he preaches the word of God to them. And where is he? Right in his own backyard. Still hasn't gone anywhere. Still there. Still the same occasion. Still right after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Because he took his stand against what people were saying. That they were speaking against the other apostles. And he tells them right there. Right then. In Jerusalem. Here's what's going on. Here's what's going on. This is the power of God. And he preaches to them from the scriptures he preaches to them from the word of god right there in the back in his own backyard and what happens when he does verse 37 now when they heard this they were pierced to the heart and said to peter and the rest of the apostles brethren what shall we do the god of the bible the holy spirit takes his word and pierced the hearts of the men that were there and the women. And they cry out for mercy. What shall we do? He takes the word and the witness of Jesus, the truth and the doctrine of Christ. He pierces their hearts. And the sovereign Christ saves men. Verse 41 So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Starts, let's go back to Matthew 28, just think about it in your minds. Back to Matthew 28, Jesus is raised from the dead. He comes up and he stands before his disciples and he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In light of the fact of all that you've seen, in light of the fact that you see me now as the raised Jesus, the raised from the dead Christ, go therefore, teach men, make disciples, tell them who I am, and go to all nations. And in His kind providence, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on them and they have the power and the authority to speak His word, God brings all nations right to them. 
because he says, begin in Jerusalem, and that's where they were. And preaches, and the sovereign God, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, saves 3,000 souls. That's amazing. That's powerful. That's what we want. That's what we pray for. We pray for the God of heaven and earth to come with power and to save souls. To save people. Now I must move on. Because I go back to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And he says, Be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, but then to the remotest part of the earth. Now understand that in the beginning of the church era, most of, and I'm not saying all of, but most of the apostles were there in Jerusalem. That's pretty much where they were. The church grew up in Jerusalem. You had the pastor of First Baptist Jerusalem or Grace Baptist Jerusalem, which was the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, James. And you read about him in the book of Acts. Only one guy gets it, what I said. But anyway, there's the church there in the middle of Jerusalem. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And that's predominantly where the apostles were, at least in the beginning. Definitely not Uh, Definitely not later on, but in the beginning, that's where they were. Until this one guy revolutionizes everything. And he wasn't even one of the original 11 or 12. That's where we were looking in Acts chapter 9. Along comes this Saul character. Now Saul, if you know his background, was a Pharisee of Pharisees educated in the things of God, educated in the things of the Scriptures. He knew it all. He had a tremendous background, and he had a tremendous mind, an analytical mind, a mind that was able to explain things and to describe things to people. And he's going after the Christians until Acts chapter 9, lo and behold, on his way to persecute Christians in Damascus, God saves him. Stops him in his tracks and saves him by his grace. And even as we read this a few moments ago, what happened? At first he became blind. This text even says his eyes were open, but he couldn't see. And what does he do? Verse 10. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. By the way, that's the way to always answer God when He calls you. Here I am, Lord. Use me. Choose me. Take me. Use me. Here I am, Lord. Verse 11. And the Lord said to him, Get up, go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias, come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias goes, whoa, wait a minute, Lord. I've heard about this guy. I heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, look at this, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings of the sons of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. But God had chosen him to go to the Gentiles. Now that would be out of Jerusalem, kind of outside of Israel. Not not totally, but you understand. I mean, predominantly that's where the Jews were, in Israel, right? But Paul was chosen by God 
to go beyond that and to the Gentiles. And God here shows him how much he must suffer, and he did, to bring this gospel, to bring this truth to all nations. To all nations. God raised this man up who had this great knowledge and insight and ability to write and to make a great argument. And he says, go, Paul, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. Now, let's see how this happened. Turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts 13. Beginning at verse 1. Now, there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who is called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them, to the work which I have called them. And then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And this is the beginning of missionary journeys. That's why I said that William Carey was the father of modern missions. Paul was the father of missions. He was the first guy that was sent out from the church. God called him and said, Set him apart for me, and I'm going to send him out to the Gentiles. Just what he promised he was going to do back in chapter 9. Here it comes to fruition. He calls him from the church, pairs him with Barnabas, and sends him out to go to the Gentiles. And you know from the rest of the book of Acts that he went forth to all kinds of distant lands, all around, bringing the gospel. What was he doing? Being a witness. Making disciples. Teaching men who Christ was, what Christ did, and all of the wonders of the mighty works of God. This is what Paul did. And he was the one who was the first, we may not know for certain, but the one who was at least one of the first recorded here in scriptures to go out with the gospel, which is what God called him to do when he saved him. So he goes out to the Gentiles and he goes and he becomes a great witness for Jesus. Now let me show you this before we close this morning. What is the biblical way for a man to be called to the mission field? It is for God to set him aside in his own providence from the very beginning. It's what he said, my purpose for you is, Paul, I'm going to send you out to the Gentiles. And here he does it. I would never say to everybody here in this church, God has called you to be a missionary. It's what every single one of us is supposed to do. That's what the Bible teaches. Go! Make disciples of all nations. Not everyone is called to be a missionary. And no one should decide for themselves that it's what I'm supposed to do. God raises up men to be missionaries, just as he raises up men to be pastors and elders in churches. God set Paul aside to the work of being a missionary, and that's what God still does today. In my lifetime, I have met several wonderful missionaries who knew that they were called of God to go to distant lands. Some of them are still there in dangerous places. William Carey was a man who went to a dangerous place in his day. And that wife that I told you he left with, and one or two of his sons died. 
shortly after he reached India. But he kept going back, kept bringing the truth, because that's what God set him aside to do. That may be the case for some of you. You may be called to be missionaries. But let me close by saying this. All of us are called to be witnesses in Jerusalem or right where you are. In your backyard, in your neighborhood, in your town, in your family, we are all called to be a witness to the mighty deeds of God, to our families, to our co-workers, to our friends, to our customers, to those that God has brought us in contact with. We are to be witnesses of the mighty deeds of Christ. We begin in Jerusalem, and some of you someday may go further. Some of you may wind up in such places as New York, Washington, D.C. You know, the fact of the matter is that some of the countries that we've sent missionaries to are less in need of missionaries than our own country. Our own country is in need of men who know the truth, the historic gospel. Some of you may be called to foreign lands and foreign nations. And that's a good thing. But that's a God thing. That's something that God does in your heart and in your life. God calls men. But all of us are called to be missionaries right here in our own Jerusalem. Right here in Florida. In this beautiful North Tampa Bay area. It's a great place. We have a great opportunity Pray that we would take advantage of it and be faithful to our calling. Let's pray.